Right. Uh, welcome back to the story of the Bible. Excited to be in this series with you. We're looking at the, the big picture of the Bible, what it is and where it came from. And uh, to help us with that this week, we've got a special guest speaker. So excited for you guys to hear from him. Uh, this is You're going to hear from my good friend, uh, Dr. Gabe Bouch. And uh, Gabe was here for our conference and stayed over this morning to be with us today. Uh, he is part of our Every Nation family. He pastors Freedom Church in Philadelphia. Uh, as you can see there, Philadelphia, PA, and is, there's this rumor uh, going around. I've heard that you're actually from what West Philadelphia. You're born and raised, right? It's like the the playgrounds where you you spent most of your days. Back, well, you know, you got in one little fight, and your mom got scared. He said, "That's not <laughs> You end up back in Philadelphia. So anyway, all right. he's in Philly. He's got a tremendous church there. It's growing, multi-ethnic, similar to ours. He's about to plant his second location. One is going to be in Jersey soon. So uh, you can pray for him. Yeah, very good. It's not bad. So not good either. But anyway, uh, three things you should know about Gabe. Number one, he, he's married Jen's his wife. Uh, we, he and I have been friends for 20 years. He'll share with that, about that in a moment. But married six children. Six children, wow. Yes. Uh, secondly, Gabe has a PhD in math. In math. And some of you are saying now, like, I don't need help with my <laughs> with the sermon. Can I get, like, some help with my homework? And so he can do it all. He can do, yeah, the answer is yes to that. He can help you <clears throat> with that long distance, I'm sure, for a, for a, for a small price. Um, and finally, Gabe, in college at Florida State University, where he got his bachelor's in physics, uh, was in the circus. Circus. Florida State has a circus program. So last night he shared, he told all of our students, he said, there's good news for all of you. Even though I'm a math nerd and I was in the circus, he said, I still got married. So there's hope for all of you, no matter who you are, where you're coming from. Amen. It's the gospel. Good news for you today. So I'm thrilled to have with us today. Would you guys give a please a warm welcome to my friend, Dr. Gabe Bouch. How we doing, Austin? Great to see you guys. You know, eventually over the years, I figured out what God was doing. So I did this PhD in math in which I studied systems with many particles. As Morgan said, I juggled in the circus where I had to keep all these objects in the air. And I eventually figured out God was preparing me to have six children and not go crazy. And so big theme running through my life. Morgan, as he mentioned, uh, Morgan and I have known each other for a bunch of years. I was a first year as a campus missionary. When I met Morgan, I think he was still uh, studying at University of Houston. And if you are just new to Mosaic Church, I want you to know that Morgan and Carrie are the real deal. And um, Carrie tries to not deny it sometimes, but uh, I get to spend some time in their home. And they're an amazing couple. And their desires that their lives, their family, this church would bring glory to God and would be a blessing to this community. So I want to encourage you. Uh, it's amazing what God is doing here. You know what's happening here? It doesn't happen everywhere. This is an amazing, dynamic community. It's diverse. It's multi-generational. It's growing. Friends, that is the exception, not the rule. So lean in here. This is a great place to be. Sometimes we miss it. In the middle, while it's happening, God is doing something miraculous here. And so don't take, uh, don't take it for granted. Well, I've got a picture of my family with me this morning. I want to introduce you. So that's my wife, Jennifer, in the middle. She has managed to stay sane through uh, having six children. 
Behind her is my oldest daughter, Clara. She's a freshman in college in Los Angeles, which is basically as far away as you can get from Philadelphia, except for maybe Alaska or Hawaii. So I don't know what's up with that, but we love her. She's studying music in L.A. Uh, My daughter in the red shirt, she's a sophomore in high school. She's too cool for school. And on the other side is Haley. She's a senior in high school. So proud of her. She's checking out colleges all over the place. In front of her is my son, Calvin. He's 12 years old. Thank God, God gave me a nerd. I was so happy. He loves math and science and computer programming, and it just makes my heart warm on the inside. And then Peter, in front of my wife, Peter is a wild man. He doesn't stop moving ever. Some of you parents have children like that. Sometimes we just have to say, just go outside and don't come back in for like several hours. In the very front is Victoria. Victoria has some special sauce on her. Uh, when she was like three years old, my wife was taking a picture of her, and after she took a picture, Victoria said, send it to me. (laughs) And my wife said, but you don't have email. And she said, but I want to send it to my friends. And my wife said, well, they don't have email either. (laughs) Around that time, I remember I was giving her a card for Valentine's Day, and as I handed her the card, she grabbed it, she leaned over and whispered in my ear, I hope there's money on the inside. (laughs) I thought, you are three years old. You don't need money for anything. We pay for everything. So anyway, she's a lot of fun, keeps us on our toes. Well, this morning, we're going to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 19. We're going to begin in verse 1. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Let's pause a moment and pray. God, we love you. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who comes near. And Lord God, you see us. You see every man, every woman in this room. Lord, you know our needs. You know our fears. You know our insecurities. God, you know the future that you have for us. Lord, I pray today you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe all that you want to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a very pivotal moment in the story of the Bible. God has rescued the descendants of Abraham from slavery in Egypt, and now he's forming them into a people who will be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, if you are somebody who regularly thinks about the Bible, you may think about it in terms of some of its major figures, people like Abraham or Moses or Ruth or David or Jesus or Paul. Or maybe you think about it in terms of its major principles. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. 
Maybe you think about it in terms of some of the big questions in life. What do I need to do to experience eternal life? Well, what I've found is that in our hyper-individualistic culture, it's very easy for, easy for us to overlook one of the major realities of the story of the Bible, and that it's this. In many ways, the story of the Bible is a story of community. It's a story of community. Now, I want to review the plot line so far with those lenses on. In Genesis chapter 1, God is preparing to create human being human beings, and he speaks from a place of community. Genesis 1, let us make mankind in our image. Now notice the word us here. Scholars debate whether this is sort of an oblique reference to the Trinity, or perhaps if it's a reference to the angelic host, a divine council of sorts. But the point for us this morning is that God created from a place of community, not out of a need for a community. God, in his own nature, in his Trinitarian nature, is communal. And before he created human beings, he had already established a heavenly community. Just two verses later, we read this. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And my wife and I said, amen. (laughs) Fill the earth and subdue it. The very first command of God that we encounter in the Bible is the command to create community. In fact, when we go to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, and we see God's creative activity from another viewpoint, we find these stunning words, it is not good for man to be alone. Do you know, at this stage, we would think the man had everything. I mean, the way that the creation is depicted in Genesis chapter 2, the man is effectively living in God's holy temple on the earth. He's got perfect fellowship with God. He's in harmony with the created order. He's got a significant calling and vocation in his life. And in the middle of that, God says, no, 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 it's not good. It's not good for him to be alone. In Genesis chapter 3, we encounter the catastrophe of sin. And when sin enters the world, all hell breaks loose on community. All of a sudden, it's not just that separation exists between human beings and their maker, the God of the universe, but they're experiencing separation from one another. So they hide, and they cover themselves with fig leaves, and the man begins to blame the woman. Now, husbands, not a great idea. Just a note to self, it's not going to go well for you tonight if you start putting the blame on your wife right? God tells the woman that childbearing is going to be full of pain. The very means of creating community is now going to be painful for you. And he says the marriage relationship itself is going to be a struggle. In Genesis chapter 4, this nascent human community continues to spin out of control when one man, Cain, kills his own brother, Abel. By the time we reach Genesis chapter 6, the human community has become so corrupt that God decides that he has to essentially begin all over again. But God doesn't give up on the original vision of community. In Genesis chapter 9, he reissues the first command that he gave. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Create community. It's still my vision. In Genesis chapter 11, A new community is beginning to form, but unfortunately, it's centered around a misguided vision. And the people say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. 
Well, God decides that he's got to break up this misguided vision, and so he confuses their language, breaks apart the community. And then in Genesis chapter 12, like we discussed last week, God begins to initiate a program of redemption, and he calls a man named Abraham and gives him an astounding promise. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So in obedience, God leaves, rather Abraham leaves his people, his country, his father's household, and he goes and he lives in a land where essentially he spends the rest of his days as an outsider to the local community. But God blesses the descendants of Abraham, and they begin to multiply greatly, and eventually we arrive at that critical place where we are today, Exodus chapter 19. God is now forming the descendants of Abraham into a holy nation, and God's intention is to fulfill his purposes through this people. Now, already in this story, already just a little ways into the second book of the Bible, we discover two major realities. Number one, community is at the heart of God's purpose. Community is at the heart of God's purpose. And number two, real community is a battle. Real community is a battle. And for this reason, many of us settle for much less. This morning, I want to drill down into three of these alternatives to real community that we tend to settle for. We see these showing up in scriptures, and I think we see these showing up in our own lives. Number one, no community. Number two, idolatrous community. And number three, missionless community. So let's dive in. Number one, no community. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's an epidemic sweeping our nation that's wreaking havoc on our physical and our mental health. Do you know what it is? Loneliness. It's loneliness. The major health insurer, Cigna, did a massive survey, something like 20,000 people recently, and they had some stunning findings. Over half of the people surveyed said that most of the time, or at least often, they feel like nobody really knows them or understands them. Something like 40% of the respondents indicated that they lack meaningful relationships and that they often feel alone. One of the most surprising findings of this survey was that young adults were actually more likely to feel lonely than older adults. Friends, this is not a fringe issue. Isolation is literally killing us. It's killing us. One author put it this way. Among epidemiologists, psychiatrists, public health officials, and social scientists, there is a growing consensus that the number one health crisis in America right now is not cancer, not obesity, and not heart disease. It's loneliness. It's loneliness. You may have heard of the great Chicago fire that raged for three days in 1871. It killed hundreds of people. It actually destroyed over 17,000 buildings. That's a lot of buildings. What you may not have heard of was a great heat wave that hit Chicago in the summer of 1995. Over a seven-day period in July in 1995, every day, the high temperatures were over 100 degrees. There was high humidity, almost no breeze. The heat index exceeded 120 on multiple occasions. Now, friends, we've got to remember, that's not Texas, right? They're not used to that there. And so it led to, get this, over twice as many deaths as the Great Chicago Fire. That one heat wave, twice as many deaths as the Great Chicago Fire. Now, the obvious question is, in a city of 2.8 million people, 
How could hundreds of people die unnoticed? How did that happen? Well, eventually they discovered this. The crucial variable sociologist Eric Klinenberg discovered was social relationships. In neighborhoods that fared well during the heat wave, residents knew who was alone, who was old, and who was sick, and took it upon themselves to do wellness checks. They encouraged neighbors to knock on each other's doors, not because the heat wave was so exceptional, but because that's what they always do. By contrast, areas with high death tolls were areas that previously had been abandoned by businesses, service providers, and most residents. Only the unconnected remained. They died alone because they lived alone. In fact, researchers discovered that four out of five of those who died were men. And on many occasions, they would go into these homes And they would find these dead bodies in chairs. And next to the chairs, they would find stacks of letters addressed to estranged children and to estranged family members that they had written but never got the courage to actually mail. They were living alone, and eventually they died alone. Now, why? Why do we do this? Why do we isolate ourselves? I think there are a number of reasons. Sometimes we just feel busy in life. I don't have time for relationships. A lot of you men out there, you just don't experience a need for relationships. You don't realize what you're missing. But I think many times behind all of that is something that goes unacknowledged. Emotional pain and shame. Emotional pain and shame. You know, one of Jesus' most interesting interactions is recorded for us in John chapter 4. And I've discovered that in many respects, this is a conversation that never should have taken place. I want to read it to you. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, this conversation never should have happened. I mean, to begin with, John tells us Jews in the first century did not associate with Samaritans. In fact, he wants to make sure that we don't miss the fact that this woman is from Samaria. Look with me again at the first few verses of this passage. Notice how many times John mentions Samaria or Samaritan. Verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Hey, John, where's this woman from again? Oh, yes, Samaria, almost forgot. Now, in addition to this, this woman is at a well at noon, the hottest part of the day, by herself. That was unusual. That is not what women did in the first century. They went to the well at cooler times of the day in groups. That indicates to us this woman was hiding. She was avoiding people. She was isolating herself. Now, why? Why was she doing that? Well, as their conversation goes on, Jesus uncovers some significant things. Jesus told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. This woman's life has been filled with relational dysfunction. The people who were closest to her have rejected her. And as a result, she's basically given up on the moral norms regarding marriage and relationships in her day. And now she's living in shame. But you know what? See, when relationships are a source of pain for us, many of us just start keeping people at arm's length. We just stop connecting right? Many times, if we grew up in a family where we experienced a lot of pain, just as a coping mechanism, we begin to pull into ourselves. You may not even realize that it's happening. And you look around in your life and you think, I've got no connections, no relationships, no friends. And you haven't even understood that you were just trying to survive. Some of you maybe were in families that moved all the time growing up. And every time you made a new relationship, it seemed like just a couple of years later, you had to say goodbye again. And it just got too difficult, and so you stopped connecting. Maybe you felt like you never quite fit in, and so you just stopped trying. Maybe you lost someone really close to you, and you decided in your heart, I will never feel that way again. And so you just stopped getting close to people. Friends, emotional pain, shame, whether caused by the things done to us or maybe by our own decisions or own moral compromise, can lead us into places of isolation. But Jesus won't let this woman stay there. He won't let it stay there. And so he has the awkward conversation. He brings it up. He won't let her hide. First, he speaks to her place of shame and pain, and he brings it out on the table. He begins to address it. Yeah, you've had five husbands, and the dude you're with right now, not your husband. Jesus is building a relationship with her based on reality. See, so many times we want to just project this false self to other people, but Jesus won't let that happen. He says, if we're going to build relationship, we're going to build it on who you really are and who I've called you to be. And so he exposes it. Is that painful? Yes, for a moment, but then we can build in reality. And those are the only kind of relationships worth building. Now notice, as they continue to talk, Jesus gives her a piece of information. He lets her in on a secret that at this point in his ministry, almost nobody knew about. Says the woman said to him, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Notice this, the rejected woman, the shamed woman, the isolated woman now has a piece of information that nobody else has and everybody else needs. So what happens? She races back into relationship. 
those places before where she felt rejected. Oh, she runs to them, leaving her water jar. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Notice, this is the woman who was avoiding people. She said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. See, Jesus engages this woman, and he gives her something of value, and it restores her to community. Friends, we need you. We need you. Jesus has placed things on the inside of you that we need. Oh, don't hide out. Don't isolate. I know there can be pain there, but if you will get it out on the table, if you will uncover it, oh, friends, Jesus will bring healing. He'll bring life. Oh, he's a safe place to go. Bring it out into the open. Let him heal you, and then run to relationship. Run to relationship. Number two, idolatrous community. Idolatrous community. In Exodus 19, God gives the people of Israel an unbelievable gift. Listen again to what he says. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In this moment, God is essentially extending to all of Israel the same promise that he had given to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, Israel, you are blessed to be a blessing. You are blessed so that you can be a blessing. Now, sadly, throughout Israel's history, they often lost sight of this calling, and they tended to miss it in one of two ways. On the one hand, they would just forget the great gift that God had given to them, and they would begin to lust after what all the nations around them had. And they would start to say, we want their gods, and we want their kings, and we want their power, and we want their provision." In some cases, we just want their parties. And all of that ultimately led to the exile. Now, on the other hand, they would take a a different points in their history. They would take this good gift that God had given to them. And rather than seeing it as a means to be a blessing to the nations, they would idolize this gift and forsake the nations. Now, it's true. Israel was a unique people. God had placed his blessing uniquely upon them. But some of the teachers in Israel took this in some very bizarre directions. In fact, by Jesus' day, there were rabbis saying things like the spirit of prophecy was now limited to the Holy Land because only Israel was suitable for the divine word. Some people believe that just the act of living in the Holy Land was meritorious on the level of obeying all of God's commandments. If you lived in Israel, then you would be promised eternal life. Some people taught just spending one day in Jerusalem would forgive a person of his sins. That is a crazy belief. Some people taught that even inferior students in the land of Israel were still superior to the best students outside the land of Israel. And if you had a sage in Israel, a wise person, well, of course, they were the best. If that person left Israel, however, they lost some of their skills, they weakened, but they were still better than those who had never lived in Israel at all. 
People felt that being buried in the Holy Land was meritorious, that that would, incur, that would guarantee you a better resurrection. In fact, they believed that those righteous who were buried in Israel would be raised first, and those who were buried outside of Israel, get this, would literally have to roll underground back to the land of Israel where they would eventually be raised to new life. Now that is bizarre. They were taking these great gifts that God had given to them, the huge Jewish symbols, the temple, the land, the Torah, and they were no longer functioning as gifts. They were functioning as idols. They'd become idols to them. Now, it's often difficult for us to see our idols until they're tampered with. Have you noticed this? Oh, we don't recognize how big of a deal it is to us until someone starts messing with it. Stephen was a leader in the early church. And his preaching and his teaching and his miracles started to ruffle some feathers, in particular with regard to these great symbols in Israel. Luke writes this, they produced false false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, Stephen, perhaps because he was a Hellenistic Jewish believer, that means he was raised in the Greek culture, spoke Greek, and had access to other peoples besides just Jewish peoples, he saw this more clearly than many other Jews. He saw how they were idolizing, many of them, their own Jewishness. And from the scriptures, he began to push back on this idolatry. In fact, all throughout his speech in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is drawing attention to all the cases where God would bless people outside of Israel. In fact, he begins by saying this, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, where? While he was still in Mesopotamia. Then he goes on to say that Abraham never had an inheritance in the Holy Land. And in fact, the people of Israel lived for centuries in Egypt. And Moses himself was educated by the Egyptians. Now concerning the temple, he said this, The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? In other words, he's saying, yes, the land is a blessing. Yes, Torah is a blessing. Yes, the temple is a blessing, but you've made an idol out of it and you're forsaking the nations. Friends, for many of us, the communities that we build, whether intentionally or unintentionally, can become the grounds for forsaking others. We can begin to idolize the home we live in or the neighborhood that we live in or the political party that we concern ourselves with, or the social circles that we run in, or the schools where we studied, right? Or God forbid, the team that we cheer for. I know know that doesn't ever happen in Texas, I know, but maybe you know somebody, you know, from a different place where that happens. See, all these things that God gives to us, they're meant to be gifts, right? The place you grew up, the, the schools you got to attend, the friends that you have, those are gifts to you. But God intends for those gifts to be a means of blessing for others, not a reason to forsake them. We've got to be careful that we don't build idolatrous communities. Number three, missionless community. Missionless community. Do you know God's intention for Israel was always bigger than Israel? It was always bigger than Israel. 
In fact, the prophet Isaiah draws attention to this on a number of, of occasions. He writes, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. During Jesus's public ministry, he often came into conflict with the religious leaders because so often they seem more caught up in their own ritual purity than actually pursuing those who had wandered off. On one occasion, Jesus calls a tax collector, a tax collector, to be one of his disciples. Now look, no rabbi in the first century had a tax collector on his draft board, right? Nobody was thinking, oh, tax collector, perfect disciple. And so Jesus calls this man to be his disciple, and it upsets the Pharisees, and they begin essentially complaining to Jesus' disciples. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, God's purpose for your life is bigger than your life. God's purpose for your life is bigger than your life. As long as you're a part of the community of God's people, you are always going to feel a tension to get involved with the mission. Friends, God has people outside of these walls that he loves, that he cares about. I mean, I'm so thankful for what God's doing in this place, but how many know he's got more to come in, right? His purpose is bigger than us. It's for those who are out there. God has called us to mission. In Exodus 19, God formed the people of Israel into a holy nation, and he gave them a global mission. In fact, God's purpose for community that he had given to all humanity, now he was effectively refocusing on one small people group on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And he was saying to them, although the catastrophe of sin has made a huge impact in the human family, through you, Israel, I'm going to redeem the nations. I'm going to bring something back. I'm going to restore them. Sadly, over the centuries, Israel herself became corrupt. The kingdom of priests was in need of a priest. And so we see the prophets beginning to speak about a mysterious figure, this one who was going to take up the calling of Israel and embody it in himself and accomplish for Israel and for the nations what God had always intended. Isaiah tells us, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Do you know that Jesus came as the true Israel? More than that, as the true humanity. And friends, he suffered the ultimate isolation in our place, on our behalf. He hung on a cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore it all for us. Our shame, our emotional pain, our sin, our isolation, He took it in his body on the cross so that we could be restored to God, but not just that, so we could be restored to community with one another. Friends, I want to encourage you, lean into relationships. 
Lean into relationships. Community is at the heart of God's purpose. Real community is a battle. But friends, Jesus has made it possible. He has made it possible. And just like in Exodus, he's once again forming a holy people. And he's called us with a global mission. Lean into it. Lean into relationships.